Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is your host, Abby Martin. Now weeks into the war in Ukraine, most people in the global north are hearing a lot about what the West and NATO countries have to say about Russia and its invasion, and the wide array of actions in response being taken by the imperialist bloc. But just south of the U.S. border, a different discussion is taking place. In particular, among the many new left-wing governments that have won elections in recent years. How has the realignment over the war in Ukraine impacted these countries, many of which are under sanctions and threats of regime change by the U.S.? And how do they fit into the larger bloc creating a counterpole to U.S. imperialism centered around China? To learn about this important dimension of the Ukraine crisis, we're joined from Nicaragua by Ben Norton, journalist and editor of the bilingual outlet Multipolarista. You can find and support his work at multipolarista.com. Ben Norton, thank you so much for coming on the Empire Files podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure being here. So, Ben, let's start by talking about Ukraine and this dramatic shift of policy in the wake of Russia's invasion when it comes to one of the main oil producers in the world, Venezuela. This is a country that's been the target of bipartisan regime change efforts for 20 years. I feel like I have to remind people of the insanity during the Trump administration with the Juan Guaido, you know, incubator <laughs> baby who was propped up and, you know, really forced on the world for so long. Like, you have to recognize this illegitimate, like, prop that we, you know, basically cultivated here in this country. Just absolutely insane. But then the Biden administration comes in, Ben, and basically just continues Trump's policies with sanctions. And, you know, these sanctions have been really devastating on Venezuela. So, you know, until recently, the U.S. political and media establishment was still not recognizing Maduro as the duly elected leader. So I guess what changed and why? Well, Abby, technically, the White House still recognizes this puppet Juan Guaido as fake president of Venezuela. I mean, it, it's incredible continuing the Trump administration policy, even while it's trying to pressure Venezuela to sell it oil. So, I mean, it's incredible. Imagine if you're Maduro, you're the real elected president of, of Venezuela, and then the U.S. comes to you and says, well, we still don't recognize you as the real president, but sell us oil because we can't import it from Russia. Let's not forget that before Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, Russia actually was one of the main providers of oil to the United States, which is why the U.S. has been desperately trying to find new exporters. This is another reason that that has led to the U.S. trying to expedite a return to the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, that's the Iran deal, that Trump unilaterally tore up violating international law. The Biden administration, Biden himself, claimed that, that the U.S. was going to return to that deal, and he's been dragging his feet, dragging his feet, and then now they're they're realizing that they really need to find new sources of oil. So it really shows at the end of the day that it's economics that speaks. It's not politics. It's it's all about economics. This is capitalism, right? And the U.S. needs oil, not necessarily to use that oil, but to stabilize the price of oil. Because in the United States, we've already seen, according to official statistics, 7.5% inflation. And, and many people speculate that that, that number is actually lower than the reality. The, the real 
digit for inflation is probably in the double digits. So the Biden White House is trying to find ways to bring down inflation, which means that it needs to bring down commodity prices, especially the price of energy, because when when oil prices go up, that means the price of everything goes up. We see this with gasoline prices in the U.S. because you need gasoline in order to transport food. So then food prices go up. You need gasoline to you need oil to send products on ships. You need gasoline. You need oil to to fly in a plane. So the price of everything goes up. So now the Biden White House is still continuing this regime change strategy against Venezuela, but expects to pressure Venezuela to sell it oil and still refuses to say that it's going to lift the blockade. Now, there might be some sanctions relief. So honestly, I mean, it does, it would make sense for Venezuela to try to sell more oil because this country has been so just devastated and tortured for years by these illegal unilateral U.S. sanctions. But it just goes to show that the U.S. has spent years claiming that falsely that Venezuela is supposedly dictatorship. It's not. That Venezuela supposedly violates human rights. That Venezuela supposedly traffics drugs. Meanwhile, it's right next door to the world's leading producer of cocaine, Colombia, the closest ally in Latin America, which produces over 70% of the world's cocaine, according to the United Nations. So, I mean, it, it, all of this just shows the incredible hypocrisy of the U.S. empire. We all need to suck it up, baby, at the gas pumps. I mean, this is patriotic all for duty. this is our patriotic <laughs> duty. We have to just or J- Jen Psaki, the White House, <laughs> the insufferable White House spokeswoman, probably the most annoying person on earth. She recently said she did this like Vox style explainer video where she said that this is like the Putin tax that you oh, think think Putin for the price of oil going up. My God, oh my God! No, it really is. It really is surreal. But um, as you mentioned, I mean, it really is hard to imagine that there would be a 180 in policy because, you know, beyond the economics of the oil, I think we we all know that the bigger crime that Venezuela has committed is being socialist. I mean, there is this kind of tonal shift, like you do see a, a shift in rhetoric coming from the corporate media. The Economist is now toying with the idea that Maduro, you know, is the one that is the president. Uh, Imagine that. Um, And then you have, you know, other publications basically kind of putting it out there like, hey, maybe it's time to move beyond this kind of tit for tat punishment, coercive relationship that we have with Venezuela. It's like, who has done what here? Like, how are you trying to conflate these two things? Like Venezuela hasn't done anything to us. We are completely asphyxiating them. So what do you make of just the media rhetoric and kind of the understanding that maybe the policy needs to change if we are shutting Russia out now in terms of oil. Well, I agree with you, Abby, except on one point. Venezuela mm-hmm. has done something to the U.S. Those evil socialists <laughs> sent heating oil to poor <laughs> and working class families in the Bronx because the U.S. government, the U.S. regime was brutalizing its own people and refused to give them heating oil in the winter of, the brutal winter of New York. No, I mean, really, Venezuela has... If anything, all it's done is helped the people of the United States and has been punished by the U.S. oligarchy for, like you said, for daring to have democratically elected socialist government. And again, I want to stress this. It was democratically elected going back to 1998 when Hugo Chavez won the first election and declared the Bolivarian Revolution. And, you know, you you highlight a really important point, Abby. And what this does is it shows, it underscores how much 
the corporate media simply just follows obediently the line of the U.S. government. So uh, two weeks ago, the U.S. government refused to have any diplomatic correspondence with the real elected president of Venezuela. And suddenly it did a 180 and said, we're going to now send a high level diplomatic delegation to talk to Maduro. And the media overnight does a 180 and gets the memo from the White House and says, we're now referring to Maduro as the real president. Even though, I want to stress this again, the White House still has not officially recognized Maduro. They still recognize this puppet Juan Guaido. It, it just shows, this is not this is not an independent media. They're water boys. They're lackeys. They They exist to be stenographers for the U.S. empire. And we see this so clearly on Ukraine. And this isn't to endorse the Russian invasion. Obviously, you know, I'm against war. But the reality is that we see that the media is simply regurgitating all of these unsubstantiated claims by the U.S. government. And this this war hysteria that we're living through right now, where, where they're now trying to portray Putin as worse than Adolf Hitler. I mean, I mean, CNN had on Michael McFaul, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, who was saying basically that Putin is worse than Hitler. That's the level of propaganda that, that Americans are being bombarded with. This is not news. This is not journalism. And Venezuela is just one of many examples of that propaganda. Well, that's also uh, Holocaust denialism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of saying objectively Putin is worse than than Hitler. It's yeah, Holocaust Michael McFall. I mean, I know that that was the Rachel Maddow thing where he, where they were like, oh, at least Hitler never killed ethnic Germans, but then also like went on to be like, and they never used chemical weapons against Germans. It's like, what the like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just shows the level. There, there was a a German politician, I want to stress this, a German politician <laughs> who was part of the Berlin parliament. And he had this Twitter thread where he basically did the same. He was like, well, Twitter, uh, he was like, sorry, well, 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 Hitler was bad, but he wasn't crazy like Putin is. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> what, are we, what is going on here? <laughs> Yikes. Uh, well, um, I, I sadly, there are like a lot and a lot of examples of exactly what we're talking about the um but we we don't want to just go over all of them because there's disturbingly too many um i do want to get back to the issue of venezuela though and of course we're going to talk about latin america more broadly i mean the when you said that the putin tax thing that jen Psaki said it and like how it's like you know we joke that it's they're saying it's all our patriotic duty to pay higher gas prices which It's literally what they're saying by calling it the Putin tax. You know, just before gas prices went up and in this big kind of crisis, uh, a, a report came out that now 64% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, living paycheck to paycheck means if you have an emergency, like your car breaks down, you have a health emergency, you lose a job or you lose one of your jobs, that everything that, that you go under, you are just making enough to get by every day, barring some kind of emergency. 64% is extremely high for any country, let alone uh, the richest country in the world. And so just uh, that fact should be contrasted with this idea that the White House is saying, oh, we should all be happy and actually excited to be paying. You know, I, I, I think we paid for gas yesterday. It was like six something a gallon. Um, but anyways, uh, we should be very happy to be paying that because we're, we're sticking it to Putin despite uh, the financial hardships everyone is in. But um, back to Venezuela, you know, after the invasion of Ukraine, Ben, 
Maduro actually issued the strongest statement of support, uh, quote, strong support of the invasion, which is according to Russia. I don't know if that's actually what he said. Uh, He also said that Venezuela, quote, laments the mockery and breaking up of the Minsk agreement by NATO promoted by the United States of America. He stressed that Washington and NATO bear responsibility for the conflict and, quote, have generated strong threats against the Russian Federation, end quote. Everyone points to this and writes it off as, oh, well, this is just because uh, Russia is one of their biggest trading partners. But what do you make of that statement? No, I mean, it's not because Russia is one of the biggest trading partners of Venezuela. It's because Venezuela, as as a country with a socialist anti-imperialist government, recognizes that the United States is the aggressor, that NATO is the aggressor. And, th- and this isn't to justify the Russian invasion. Obviously, again, as anti-war activists and journalists, we need to be against war. But we also need to understand that Russia did not start this war. It did escalate the war by invading, but Russia didn't start the war. The war started in 2014 with a U.S.-backed coup that overthrew the democratically elected government in Ukraine. And Venezuela has criticized that coup. Venezuela recognizes the role of NATO in continuously expanding east and south, by the way. There's a country that is decidedly not in the North Atlantic called Colombia, the, the, the western neighbor of Venezuela. Last time I looked on a map, uh, Colombia is in South America. It's not in the North Atlantic, but it is an official NATO observer, a NATO partner, a special NATO partner. Colombia is also right next to Venezuela. We know that Colombia has backed numerous terrorist invasions of Venezuela, including so-called Operation Gideon, with this Florida-based mercenary firm that was backed by the Trump administration, the leader of which met at Trump's Doral golf course and and talked with U.S. government officials to get support for invading Venezuela. Colombia has literally multiple times tried to invade and do terrorist attacks inside Venezuela. Colombia works with NATO. Colombia, in fact, just a few weeks ago, had military exercises with the U.S. Navy in the Caribbean Sea near the coast of Venezuela. So this is not an idle threat. Venezuela is being actively threatened by a NATO special partner, the first ever NATO special partner in Latin America. And that's why Venezuela also recognizes the role in NATO, NATO's role in creating this conflict in Ukraine after the U.S.-backed coup created a civil war. And that civil war between 2014 and the beginning of this year, before a single troop from Russia entered Ukraine, in the eight years of this U.S.-fueled civil war in Ukraine, 14,000 Ukrainians died. And according to the United Nations, as of January of this year, the United Nations Human Rights Office found that 81.4% of civilian casualties in that civil war in Ukraine in the past four years were in the Donbass, the eastern region of Ukraine. That is over four-fifths of civilian casualties in the, pa- in the last four years of this Ukrainian civil war fueled by the West were Russian-speaking Ukrainian civilians in the eastern region that were killed by the Ukrainian government and paramilitary groups backed by the West. That is why Venezuela released this statement. Of course, it does have an alliance with Russia, and they are important political and economic and military partners, but Venezuela's foreign policy is motivated by its socialist and anti-imperialist ideology. And one important point I want to make here, if you look at the statements from Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, 
Vietnam, Laos, the DPRK, all of the socialist governments in the world, pretty much China, they have criticized NATO and the U.S. for creating this war. However, I will I won't clarify something that pretty much all of them have not openly expressed support for the invasion because they're against war and they're against the violation of the territorial integrity of any country. They recognize that that's an important part of anti-imperialist ideology. It's also an important precedent because if they support the violation of the territorial integrity of another country, it could come back to hurt them. So Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, Vietnam, Laos, the DPRK, these other countries, they have not openly expressed support for the Russian invasion. And I think that's the correct position. They do not openly support the invasion. But they have said that the U.S. and NATO bear responsibility for causing this this conflict and for pushing Russia to invade without openly supporting the invasion. Yeah, absolutely, Ben. And I want to get into just a little bit of these quotes and then get into the U.N. vote from these uh, countries that you were just talking about. But I just wanted to preempt that by just expressing my, I guess, anger at a a lot of people that I see online trying to shut down what all of the points that you just brought up. And I guess it angers me because all of these socialist countries that have been a target of U.S. regime change for decades and have been on the receiving end of these criminal sanctions are saying the exact same thing that we are. (laughs) Of course, we denounce the invasion of Ukraine. Of course, it's a criminal act. But what are we, what can we do, especially as American leftists in the belly of the beast, the global hegemon that is instigating, poking a nuclear armed bear in the eye for decades? I mean, the only thing that we can do is pressure our government to stop escalating the situation. So I, I... to write all of this off as just Putin apologia is really upsetting and distressing um, as this war unfolds, Ben. Let's talk about the response to the war from the rest of the global south and how it might impact these countries and their relationships to both Russia and the U.S. Um, leaders from Costa Rica, Ecuador, Guatemala, Mexico, Panama, Paraguay, Peru, the Dominican Republic, and Uruguay signed a joint letter denouncing the invasion. Leaders of socialist Nicaragua and Cuba issued similar statements condemning Washington for its role in creating the crisis. Now, I'm reading this all from Multipolarista, your excellent new um, bilingual website. Um, I just want to read quickly about Nicaragua. Nicaragua's President Daniel Ortega condemned Washington for sponsoring the 2014 coup in Ukraine, joined Russia in recognizing Donetsk and Lugansk, People's Republics, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba have stood with Russia against NATO expansion and Western military encirclement. Moving on to Cuba, Cuba blamed Washington for the crisis. Its foreign ministry stated, quote, the U.S. determination to continue NATO's progressive expansion toward the Russian Federation has brought about a scenario with implications of unpredictable scope, which could have been avoided. Very well said. Uh, Denouncing Western governments for sending weapons to Ukraine Cuba added, history will hold the United States accountable for the consequences of an increasingly offensive military doctrine outside NATO's borders, which threatens international peace, security, and stability. Let's talk about the UN vote. As you mentioned, despite these statements strongly condemning the U.S., um, they chose to abstain uh, alongside China from voting in support of Russia, of course. Talk about this UN vote and why it was significant. 
Absolutely. Well, as you summarize there very well in those statements from the socialist governments in Latin America, they have all unified with this position of, again, condemning the U.S. and NATO for starting this war, but also not openly supporting the Russian invasion. Again, because they strongly support the principles of the UN Charter. They're members of this group called the Group of Friends in Defense of the UN Charter, which is based on non-intervention and sovereignty and defense of territorial integrity. So they are being consistent there, but they're also recognizing that this war is not just a one-sided war. Again, that doesn't mean that we should support the Russian invasion, but we should recognize that this war was started by the US and NATO and taking the position of only condemning the Russian invasion but not condemning the US and NATO for starting the war is not the anti-war position. And this is what some people on the left, especially you know in the global north, this is the position that they're trying to argue in support of, that basically they're saying that NATO is innocent. NATO is not innocent. NATO for its entire history has been an offensive, warmongering alliance. NATO, when it was founded in 1949, included the fascist dictatorship of Portugal as one of the founding members. It has nothing to do with democracy. Throughout the first Cold War, NATO supported former Nazis and former Nazi collaborators in, in Operation Paperclip and Operation Gladio. NATO has been linked to terrorist attacks against leftists inside Europe, including in Italy, especially in the years of lead. NATO, after the first Cold War, then after overthrowing socialism in the Eastern Bloc, NATO carried out a regime change war that destroyed the country of Yugoslavia. NATO also was deeply involved in Afghanistan. The, the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan for 20 years, the military occupation, was a joint U.S.-NATO occupation. And then, of course, NATO destroyed Libya, the most prosperous country in Africa. And 11 years after the 2011 NATO war that destroyed Libya, there still is no central government in Libya. There are open-air slave markets for sub-Saharan African refugees. So that explains why the socialist governments in Latin America and around the world have taken this position against NATO. And that's why I think we'll talk about this in a bit, that I think anyone listening to this, anyone in the U.S. who has a progressive bone in their body, who considers themselves part of the anti-war movement, the number one demand I think that we need to have right now is abolish NATO. And yes, we do want the war in Ukraine to end. We do want Russia to withdraw its troops. We do want a peaceful negotiation, a peaceful settlement to this conflict through diplomacy and not through war. But we also, in, or, in order to have that happen, we have to abolish NATO. And if we only ask for one side to end the war, that's not the anti-war position. So anyway, getting back to your question, I mean, uh, you said it very well, Abby. In the global south, the position is very different. I, I live in Nicaragua. I've been here several years, and I work a lot with people in the Latin American media, lefty alternative media here, and they have a very unique, different position. And we could see that in the UN vote. We saw, so we, we talked about Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, and also Bolivia, which either abstained or did not vote in, in the UN vote to condemn Russia. And then we also saw other socialist governments, Vietnam, China, Laos, the DPRK, they either abstained or in the case of the DPRK, actually, it voted uh, with Russia. It voted against the resolution condemning the war in Ukraine. Also, Syria and Eritrea and Belarus, 
voted to condemn the resolution voting alongside Russia. So Eritrea, this is a country in Africa that had a revolution. It's a post-colonial government that prides itself on economic nationalism and social democratic policies and and an anti-imperialist foreign policy. We also saw, in addition, countries like Armenia, which had, you know, has a history of struggle against colonialism and genocide. We saw Algeria, which has a history of a revolution against French colonialism, and Angola, which also has a history of a revolution against colonialism. They all abstained. We saw that South Africa has been taking another really interesting position. South Africa abstained in the vote, and the president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, has actually openly come out and said that it's NATO that bears responsibility for starting this war, and he refused to take a position. He, he did say that he did, he did not openly condemn Russia, but he did say that South Africa opposes all violations of territorial integrity and military intervention. So that's clearly an indirect criticism of the Russian invasion, but he did not openly say that Russia bears responsibility. He said that it's NATO that bears responsibility. So, and then finally, I think one of the most interesting votes, I mean, I didn't even mention several other countries in Africa and Asia that have taken these positions of abstaining um, Pakistan is another interesting example, but I think the most interesting vote that we should talk about is India. India is a major U.S. ally. India actually has a, a very right-wing government. It is not in any way a progressive government led by the BJP party and Narendra Modi. This is a Hindu chauvinist, Hindu nationalist party. They're not friends of the left. But even India, which has a history of the non-aligned movement, which was one of the founders of the non-aligned movement, India prides itself historically on an independent foreign policy. India also abstained. It did not condemn Russia for this invasion of Ukraine. So what that shows is that the two largest countries on earth, China and India, each of which has around 1.4 billion people, they abstained in this UN vote and they're playing the role of negotiators. They are not blaming one side. They are Well, China is blaming the West. India is not blaming one side. They're playing a, a more important diplomatic role, recognizing that the US and NATO also bear responsibility. And by the way, as you said, not only do they bear responsibility historically, but they continue to escalate this war. And that is also, the last thing I'll say here before pivoting back to you, Abby, is that we, ha we hear some of these people especially some of the kind of the softer progressive voices in the U.S. who, I mean, we, we need to win them over, right? We don't just denounce them and attack them and demonize them, but we need to win them over by having discussions like this. And their argument is that, well, Russia's the aggressor. We have to condemn Russia and, and all of this. And yes, we don't support the Russian invasion. But if you are serious about being an anti-war activist, then you can oppose the Russian invasion, but also you need to recognize the role of the U.S. and NATO, not only in starting this war, but continuing to send billions of dollars of weapons, of anti-tank missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, flooding the country with weapons, encouraging people to go to Ukraine to go kill Russians. And when the people go, by the way, we're not talking about peace-loving, cuddly liberals. We're talking about many far-right nationalists who are motivated by a kind of neo-Nazi ideology, and they want to go kill Russians because they think Ukrainians are on the front lines of a race war. So the U.S. and NATO are not just sitting idly. They continue to accelerate and escalate this war in Ukraine instead of calling for the only solution that we should actually be demanding, which is 
peaceful resolution through diplomacy and through a political settlement. What you're saying about how it, people are being attacked for both uh, denouncing the invasion, but pointing out the role of NATO, uh, back to this idea of how the, the U.S. media, the bourgeois media is really doing a weird uh, gymnastics to try to you know, keep the U.S.'s hands clean, but keep all the focus on Putin as this worse than Hitler person. Uh, there's this word that emerged this week and it has been repeated all over uh, mainstream media and articles. And that word is West-splaining, uh, a play on mansplaining. And it <laughs> refers to bringing up NATO when everyone, whenever you talk about the war in Ukraine. If you bring up NATO and point out that NATO had any role, you are West-splaining. And of course, uh, I'm sure that uh, came from this meeting the White House had with all of these influencers and TikTokers and stuff to brief them on how to sell the U.S. policy in the region. But um, before we continue talking about the different countries in Latin America and the significance of, of what they're doing in relation to Ukraine, um, because you are in Nicaragua and have been living there. Just curious, how has the country fared under sanctions in your uh, experience? The disinformation campaign about the supposedly authoritarian regime of Daniel Ortega, how's it survived the pandemic and all of that? What should people know about life on the ground right now, um, you know, uh, to help better understand the position of Ortega and the statement he made denouncing NATO and, um, you know, kind of not openly backing up Russia, but, you know, tacitly doing so? Yeah, well, I will say that Nicaragua is a close ally of Russia. It's also become a very close ally of China. And I know that later we want to talk about China because China and Russia have also become major strategic partners. So we can't understand the conflict in Ukraine without also understanding the new Cold War and the growing alliance between Russia and China and also countries in Latin America and Iran. Iran, I should mention, also abstained at the UN vote. So th this is part of, you know, what's going on in Nicaragua is part of everything that we're talking about now with global, with the global political realignment that we're seeing. But in terms of the situation politically, the Sandinistas, the, a socialist anti-imperialist party that, that the Sandinista National Liberation Front, for people who don't know, very, very briefly in a nutshell, they had a revolution in 1979 after years of armed struggle. They overthrew a U.S.-backed right-wing dictator. And then in the 1980s, there was this brutal U.S. terrorist war. The CIA armed and trained these fascist death squads called the Contras. There was a U.S. blockade on Nicaragua in the 1980s, similar to the blockade on Cuba and now Venezuela. And then given that terrorist war and the blockade, the, there was an election in 1989, 1990, and the Sandinistas lost, and they lost power. And then there was a period of neoliberalism for 17 years, from 1990 until 2007, with three different right-wing U.S. puppet governments. And then what happened is that in the 2006 elections, the Sandinistas won fair and square, and they came back to power in 2007 and have governed since then. And they created a system of free universal education and healthcare, and free, by the way, all medical services, including I have friends whose parents or grandparents unfortunately had cancer, and they got chemotherapy and cancer treatment for free. Meanwhile, in the US, the richest country in the world, people, the most common cause of bankruptcy is medical bankruptcy, medical debt. And the most common cause of medical debt is cancer treatment. So, I mean, that's the great civilized U.S. You know, it's actually a barbaric policy against the people of the U.S. Meanwhile, in 
Nicaragua, which is the second or third poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, we see that the government has created these ambitious social programs. They also have highly emphasized the role of women. And Nicaragua went from, in 2006, in the neoliberal era, having the 90th, the 90th uh, highest level of gender equality in the government. And they now have the fifth highest gender equality in the entire world. Over, because they, they, Sandinistas passed a law requiring at least half of all government positions to be filled by women. And they also have pushed an anti-imperialist foreign policy and allied with Venezuela and Cuba and Bolivia and countries in the Caribbean and China and Russia and Iran and Zimbabwe and many other countries. So, of course, the U.S. has not just sat by and allowed this. The U.S. has spent many millions of dollars supporting right-wing neoliberal opposition groups and media outlets. And then in 2018, there was a very bloody coup attempt, a violent coup attempt that, you know, you all at the Empire Files, you did incredible coverage of this in the the brilliant documentary that you all did on the Guarimbas. Well, in general on, the, on Venezuela, but you all are so brave. I mean, I, I still remember when you all went to the Guarimbas in Venezuela, those were the bloody violent barricades in which these far-right U.S.-backed extremists, these fascists in Venezuela, were like lighting Chavistas on fire and and beheading people with these wires and all this stuff. So that, that strategy that happened in Venezuela in 2014 and 2017, it was repeated here in Nicaragua in 2018. And, and instead of calling them guarimbas, here they were called tranques, but it was the same strategy of making these violent barricades. And there was months of violence and then eventually the coup failed, like it failed in 2017 in Venezuela. And because the coup failed, the U.S. punished Nicaragua with sanctions. And ever since 2018, the U.S. has been imposing more and more sanctions. Every several months, there are more sanctions imposed. And then last November of 2021, there were, there were elections here in Nicaragua, and the Sandinistas won those elections fair and square. And the U.S. responded with even more sanctions, basically a blockade similar to Venezuela and Cuba, basically refusing to recognize the government with these false claims that supposedly the government imprisoned the so-called opposition candidates who were actually not presidential candidates. And they were imprisoned for leading the violent coup attempt and taking millions of dollars from the U.S., which... Last time I checked, it's a crime in any country to take <laughs> millions of dollars from a foreign power to organize a violent coup. So anyway, Nicaragua is now under very brutal sanctions. However, I will say that I've been to Venezuela several times, and I've seen the very difficult circumstances caused by the U.S. blockade. And the situation here is very different, and I think there are a few main reasons for that, briefly. One... In Nicaragua, it is a country that is food sovereign, unlike, unfortunately, in Venezuela for historical reasons going back 100 years when oil was discovered, decades well before Hugo Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution, even back in the neoliberal era, Venezuela has always been reliant on food imports and oil exports. It's been a petrostate, which means that when the U.S. imposed sanctions, and then eventually a full-on embargo, it meant that Venezuela couldn't sell its oil, which meant that 99% of government revenue in Venezuela disappeared, according to the UN Special Rapporteur on Sanctions. This is a UN statistic. So that meant that the Venezuelan government didn't, it no longer had 99% of its revenue to fund social programs, which meant a massive economic crisis. 
The difference here in Nicaragua is that it doesn't have large natural resources like oil and gas and minerals. It's largely an agricultural economy. In fact, it's one of the only countries in the world where the percentage of people working in in the agricultural sector actually has been slightly increasing over time. Whereas in many countries in the world, the population of people living in urban areas has been increasing against rural areas. And that's because the Sandinistas have implemented programs of land redistribution, giving farmers and peasants their land and encouraging people, giving them seeds and fertilizers and materials so they can grow food. And a lot of organic food, by the way. So, so Nicaragua has been in a better situation economically. And also the Sandinistas in the 1980s, they learned how hard it is to be under a blockade. So they developed this kind of, you know, mentality, this kind of siege mentality that says that when we come back to power, we need to take these measures to be economically sovereign, to be food sovereign, so we can be sanctions proof. So there are difficulties. I'm not going to lie and pretend like, you know, that the, the, the economy hasn't suffered. And then you mentioned COVID. I mean, that, that also made it very difficult. And, you know, in a country like Nicaragua, where the majority of the population works in the informal economy, it made it even more difficult because, it, you know, people don't just have, a lot of people don't even have bank accounts and they can't just sit at home and work, you know, in isolation. So the government had to have a complex series of policies, but they took COVID very seriously. They did a mass vaccination campaign, thanks to vaccines from Russia, including the Sputnik vaccine and from China and also from Cuba. And Nicaragua has the the uh, second, the highest or second highest level of vaccination in Central America, depending on what statistics you use. And they also have vaccinated at all levels, including all people over two years old. Wow. And they have used they've used Cuba's special Abdullah two vaccine. Cuba has developed five COVID vaccines under the U.S. blockade. It's an incredible, an incredible victory for socialist healthcare. And Cuba has. They also developed a, an, a new uh, certain, a special vaccine for young people, for people between ages two and 12, I believe. And they have used them in Nicaragua. So, I mean, despite all of those difficulties of the 2018 coup attempt, the sanctions imposed by the US and then COVID, Nicaragua still has been able to move forward. Its economy has either not shrunk or has slightly grown. And then finally, as we'll talk about in a bit, its, its alliance with China has economically is going is, has offered the possibility of helping Nicaragua to keep growing in the future. I remember how random it seemed when Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, had that troika of tyranny speech. And it's like, yeah, I think we all know that Venezuela is a target. And of course, Cuba's 60 year embargo. But Nicaragua just seemed totally random. I think to a lot of people, they were like, what? Like, why is this? <laughs> it, it's just comical when you look at actually the the politics of Latin America. And it's just so obviously the countries that are not completely subservient. And then all of a sudden, you know, Daniel Ortega coming back into power. It's just it's just literally a formulaic um, regime change efforts that we just see play out over and over again. And when they don't work, there's almost something beautiful about the self-sufficiency of countries like Cuba, like Nicaragua to burgeon on their own and to create a structure where they aren't dependent on these uh, 
dictates of, of the U.S. global economy. And so that is something that's really, really amazing that you just outlined. And that gives me a lot of hope. And I know we're going to get into just this kind of global restructuring in general. But I, I can't help but bring up Bolivia because, you know, there's so many exciting things happening in this region. And I think Bolivia is also something that is just completely nuts. I mean, the fact that this U.S.-backed coup ousted Evo Morales installed this Christian fascist, Janine Añez, which you covered extensively. And then after this happened, the MAS party comes back, wins a landslide election led by Luis Arce. And Evo Morales, I mean, he's out there, one of the, the most vocal opponents of U.S. imperialism, you know, out there every day talking about abolishing NATO. He's issued incredibly strong statements about how the U.S. is the enemy of peace. And he's also organizing an international movement from the South American leftist organization Runasur to end NATO. In a recent interview with Sputnik, um, he said, quote, NATO is a danger to world peace, to security. So we are in the task of how to reach agreements with social movements, not only in Latin America, but in all continents to eliminate it. If nothing is done against NATO, it will become a permanent threat to humanity. So this is all extremely interesting. I know that, of course, Luis Arce hasn't responded in the same, you know, with the same clarity that uh, Evo Morales has, but I think Evo Morales' statement really says it all. I mean, can you speak to Runasor, how successful it's been to strengthen these alliances in the region? You already really eloquently described how, uh, you know, how much of a threat NATO is to Latin America. And I really want to emphasize that. I mean, this isn't just on the doorstep of Russia. This is everywhere, especially with the vassal state, um, Colombia, that's just, you know, propped up by the U.S. empire. But yeah, speak to Evo Morales' statement, this new Runasur um, initiative, and Luis Arce and how he's fared so far taking back power in Bolivia. Well, you said it very well, Abby. And, and when it comes to Evo Morales, I think we should understand that I really consider him to be a figure up in the, the pantheon of leftist socialist icons in history, up there with Che Guevara and Fidel. I mean, he really is a monumental leader. He's so important. And also he's so important because the, people, the indigenous peoples of the world, but especially of the Americas, have been so brutalized after hundreds of years of colonialism. And Evo Morales is the first ever indigenous head of state of Bolivia as, as a modern nation state, and he turned Bolivia into a plurinational state. And he has really, I think, kind of helped to solve the national question in the Americas, because this is a question in the United States that, that I think the left is still grappling with in many ways, that the U.S. is a country founded on genocide against indigenous peoples. There still is this ongoing process of dispossession and genocide against indigenous peoples. And we see the U.S. government trying to build pipelines through indigenous lands and, the, you know, the horrible abuse of indigenous peoples. And Bolivia, under Evo Morales, and continued now under President Luis Arce and the Movement Towards Socialism Party, MAS, they really have presented a new model for the entire world of a way to, to incorporate indigenous peoples into the state structure by creating a plurinational state that recognizes multiple nations and that multiple languages and that honors the, the culture and the traditions and the, I mentioned the language, which is important in Latin America, of these communities that have been so repressed and brutalized 
over hundreds of years of colonialism. So you mentioned Runasur. Uh, Runasur is named that because, well, it's partially a reference to a Quechua word, um, which means people, but also it's it has its name origins in Unasur. Unasur was the, well, still is, the Union of South American Republics. This was created at the peak of the progressive movements in Latin America in the first decade of the 2000s, and it was an attempt to create basically a kind of African union for Latin America, to unify South America with this kind of political architecture that would allow South America to resolve its own internal disputes without the intromission of imperial powers like the US and Canada and Europe. And there were many countries that were part of UNASUR, but what happened is that as there were a series of counter-revolutions and US-backed coups, and as the left lost power in multiple countries, one by one, many of these countries left UNASUR, including Argentina and Chile and Ecuador, which had been the, the headquarters of UNASUR, which were in Quito, the capital of Ecuador. So what happened is that UNASUR basically was killed and it was killed largely by U.S. imperialist meddling in Latin America. And now Evo Morales, in 2021, he called for reinvigorating this project of political unity of Latin America, of South America, with RUNASUR, and specifically doing it from the grassroots with people's organizations, with indigenous nations, with workers' unions, and trying to, to bring back this idea of political unity of South America. And at the same time, you mentioned something important. It's not just South America. It is international outside of South America. It's also about making links with indigenous struggles in other parts of the world, in North America. And Evo Morales, he recognizes the role that NATO plays as a key pillar of imperialism. And you mentioned that Luis Arce hasn't been as forthright. Luis Arce is more diplomatic, he's, he's more cautious with his language, but Luis Arce is a firm socialist, he is part of the Movement Toward Socialism Party, which is led by Evo Morales, and Luis Arce was economic minister under Evo Morales. He has a unique vision for how to, to develop countries in the Global South, using their natural resources, creating state-owned companies, uh, encouraging economic self-sufficiency, and it is true that Luis Arce hasn't spoken out very forcefully, but he did, uh, he's being criticized by the right-wing opposition in Bolivia for not condemning Russia and for not openly supporting Ukraine, for being neutral. And Evo Morales has, as you said, been calling for abolishing NATO. So what this again shows is that the Latin American left, which in many ways around the world is the kind of the vanguard of the international left, they have taken this position recognizing the role of NATO and U.S. imperialism, and NATO being at the core of U.S. imperialism, they recognize the role of the U.S. empire in causing these conflicts around the planet, and that they themselves are affected by the so-called North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is creeping into South America, that's not part of the North Atlantic. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, clearly there is a logic to the approach that Arce is taking, even though he may personally share the same exact position as Morales, but being out there as a newly elected leader with the same fervor as Morales against NATO, 
probably strategically, if you're thinking about what is going to make the target on your back even bigger from the United States, exactly. there is probably a, a measure there and how hard they're going to go in this situation. I want to mention three other countries who also had recent left-wing victories in the presidential elections, three places where the right wing has been fairly dominant historically, and these were big victories for the left in the election, and that's uh, Obrador in Mexico, uh, Gabriel Bork in uh, Chile, and Alberto Fernandez in Argentina. Those three countries have all taken pretty similar approaches to Arce in their response. Um, actually, in Chile and Argentina, and I believe Mexico too, just denounced Russia, but didn't really say anything about NATO. And so what do you, can you briefly talk about the responses of those countries? And and do you think it's the same as Arce's approach of saying they just don't want to kick the hornet's nest of the U.S.? Um, And really what it means about the changing dynamic in the region that these recent victories have happened in addition to other left-wing governments existing? Well, this is a very good question, Mike. And To be honest, I actually don't think that they're comparable to Bolivia and Luis Arce. We have to understand that Bolivia, it it plays a role in Latin America that's kind of a unifying bridge for the Latin American left. But the Latin American left in the past several years, really the past decade, has been pretty divided into two camps. And it's important to understand this because there is this idea outside of Latin America that sees it all as like the united pink tide, this this term that was often used. And in some ways, you know, that does refer to a real thing that happened in the the first decade of the 2000s when there were left-wing governments in almost every country in Latin America, but it was never really unified in this kind of uh, a project. And and even the, the term the pink tide is not used in Latin America. It's a term used outside in English. So We've seen that that those incipient divisions that we saw that were that were that existed but were not really strong in the first decade of the 2000s. In the second decade of the 2000s, with the series of coups and counter revolutions and right wing victories, we saw that the the Latin American left split pretty hard. And the U.S. of course bears a huge responsibility for that with the whole idea of the troika of tyranny and specifically by threatening countries with sanctions if they do business with Venezuela, which means that not only is it a political question for your country, but an economic question. So this has forced countries to take a line demonizing Venezuela and also Nicaragua and Cuba. Of course, Cuba has been suffering from this demonization and isolation and blockade since 1960. But so in order to understand Argentina and Chile, I think we need to understand that they have fallen on this line of the split that is that is not in support of Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. And in terms of understanding the political alliances in the region, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, and Bolivia are part of the Bolivarian Alliance. Very in a, in a brief nutshell, the Bolivarian Alliance, known as the ALBA, the A L B A, the ALBA, was created by Hugo Chavez and and also Fidel Castro of Cuba in the early 2000s as an alternative to the Bush administration's attempt to create a NAFTA for all of Latin America. So in 1994, the Clinton administration created the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, which devastated the Mexican economy. Well, the Bush administration a decade later in 2003 was trying to create a free trade area for all of the Americas. And Cuba and also Hugo Chavez in Venezuela opposed that. 
and they created an alternative called the Alba. And it's the Alba also, the official name is the Bolivarian Alliance and the Trade Agreement for the Peoples, the Alba TCP. So what happened is that it started between Cuba and Venezuela. And then in the 2000s, you saw that Evo Morales came to power in Bolivia in 2006. And Daniel Ortega came back to power in Nicaragua in 2007. And then Rafael Correa came to power in, in Ecuador. And they all joined the Alba. And they all tried to create an economic union of Latin America to do trade with each other. And they even created a pan-Latin American currency to challenge the, the, the dominance of the U.S. dollar, which is still used for much trade in Latin America. So that, that was an important economic block. And then numerous countries in the Caribbean joined, including uh, we saw that Antigua and, and Barbadua, we saw that uh, Grenada and other countries in, in the Caribbean joined. Well, then there was basically a kind of coup in Ecuador where the former vice president of Correa did a 180, um, Lenny Moreno, and betrayed his movement and withdrew from the Alba. And then we saw that there was the coup in Bolivia. And then there was, the, of course, the 2009 U.S. coup in Honduras. So Honduras had been part of the Alba and Honduras withdrew. So there was a series of coups and all this, and these countries withdrew from the Alba. And that left the so-called Troika of Tyranny holding on. And that's, that's not a coincidence that the U.S. demonized them because they were the only remaining socialist governments in Latin America. Let's not forget that the Trump administration overthrew the government in Bolivia, the socialist government, which meant that there were only three remaining socialist governments. But then you also had, you mentioned that in Mexico, Andres Manuel López Obrador, AMLO, A-M-L-O, he came to power and he represented a kind of new wing of the Latin American left that was not allied with the ALBA, that is to say not allied with Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, but is not antagonistic to them, which is important because the right-wing regimes had have been and still are very antagonistic to the ALBA. And AMLO refused to recognize Juan Guaido as fake president. He refused to break <laughs> formal diplomatic relations. And then you saw in Chile, there was this right-wing billionaire president who came to power, Sebastián Piñera, who also withdrew from UNASUR. And then in Argentina, there was this right-wing uh, multimillionaire neoliberal who came to power named Mauricio Macri. And he took the largest IMF loan in history, over $50 billion, and devastated the economy. And he lost power through democratic elections, largely because he created an economic crisis. And then a, another kind of center-left president came to power in Argentina. That this, is, this is after, in December 2018, that, that was when AMLO came to power in Mexico. And then you saw, the next year you saw in Argentina, you saw Alberto Fernandez come to power. And again, he, he represented a, a, another kind of more moderate wing of the Latin American left that didn't openly support the coup, did not support Juan Guaido, but also is not a friend of Venezuela. So this kind of neutralist position, they say, in between imperialism and Venezuela and Cuba and Nicaragua. And then in Chile, the most recent example is late last year, there were elections in November and Gabriel Boric, a young 35-year-old, won the election in Chile, and he again represents this kind of center-left wing. So what we've seen is there are kind of two camps in the Latin American left. There is the ALBA, 
which is Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Bolivia, and some Caribbean nations. And then there is the kind of more center-left uh, wing, which is Mexico, Chile, and Argentina. And to be fair to them, they have played a positive role in the region by opposing coups. They strongly opposed the U.S.-backed coup in Bolivia, and the, they, they helped uh, Mexico and Argentina gave refuge to Evo Morales and other members of his MAS party. And they have pushed for diplomacy, and they have also, in some ways, tried to be brokers to help solve the crisis in Venezuela. But at the same time, they are not in any way, you know, anti-imperialist revolutionary movements like we see in the Alba countries. So it's interesting to see the creation of this kind of center-left, kind of social democratic left in Latin America, which is new to the region, in figures like Alberto Fernandez and Gabriel Boric in Chile. And we're gonna see how that goes, but there are a lot of people in Latin America who are concerned that they're kind of a weaker link and that they can be kind of exploited to try to divide the left, especially Gabriel Boric in Chile, because although he was certainly a much better candidate than the literal fascist candidate, <laughs> who was even worse than Trump that Chile had in the November election. His name was was Jose Antonio Cast, and he is the literal son of a Nazi. It's not an exaggeration. His father, his father, his last name is Cast, K-A-S-T, and his father was a German immigrant, a former Nazi who voluntarily joined the, the Nazi army and the Hitler youth. And then toward the end of World War II, when he, he could see the writing on the wall, he fled to Argentina and then went to Chile and he got involved in politics. He became a businessman and made a lot of money. And his son openly campaigned on promising to bring back Pinochet era policy, policies, praising Pinochet. So, I mean, between, if you have to pick between, between a fascist who wants to bring back Pinochet's policies on one side, and a center-left social democrat. Obviously, you pick the center-left social democrat. I'm not saying that Cast was better, but being realistic, Gabriel Boric is is not necessarily a good sign for Latin America because he spent his entire campaign demonizing Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, and also China, saying, "Look, I, I'm against them. They're authoritarian, and I want to do something different." So we'll see how this goes. But what we're seeing is that the U.S. campaign. That it has spent decades trying to divide the Latin American left and funding NGOs and funding media outlets to create this idea that that the ALBA countries are so, so-called authoritarian countries. And we've seen that that has kind of broken through a little bit and it's led to some divisions. So we'll see how in the next few years how that goes. But there, the Latin American left is not very unified, which actually, the last thing I'll say here is that this actually... It's totally feeds into our discussion of Venezuela and Russia and China and Nicaragua and all that, because what that actually has done is it has encouraged this vision for the, the ALBA countries, Venezuela, uh, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Bolivia. They have started to look, I mean, of course, they want to have better relations in Latin America with their neighbors, but they've recognized that there are these political problems and obstacles. So what they've actually done is started looking across the ocean and started looking toward China and Russia and Iran and Eritrea and Ethiopia and other countries to have more and more economic and political alliances recognizing this split in the Latin American left. Absolutely, which is why we saw Argentina 
um, reach out to China about dealing with its, I guess, $44 billion in debt from the IMF. I'm really happy you broke down these complexities because I think we tend to, I guess a lot of people in the media tend to kind of generalize this region, which is really um, not doing the service that it needs to, to really explain the nuances here, because you can kind of look at the region and be like, oh, there's a resurgence of, of this pink tide. But it's so much more complex than that. There's there's different wings and factions, just like there are in any left movement. And, you know, I think it is overall a very, very optimistic time and an amazing time to see how this can all evolve. But yeah, I mean, we shouldn't forget that when you are more social democratic and more center left, then you tend to bow down to the pressures of the rest of the planet, especially when it comes to denunciations of countries like Venezuela and Cuba, which is quite unfortunate because we really need those countries to stand strong to oppose the ongoing economic warfare against them. Yeah. And we want to make sure also to mention Peru, another country in South America that had a a leftist recently elected president, Pedro Castillo. Uh, Anything to say on his role and leadership throughout this and uh, his alliance with the socialist bloc? Yes, I will say that the election of Pedro Castillo was very important in Peru because Peru has a unique history that's similar to Colombia. I mean, they're neighbors, and Peru, like Colombia, has a history of right-wing regimes that brutally, violently repress the left, murdering leftists. I mean, also in Chile, of course, the legacy of Pinochet is still very, very much alive. I mentioned that one of the main presidential candidates campaigned supporting Pinochet. So in, in the case of Peru, the left was basically liquidated. There's also a a long historical debate about the Maoist movement there, Shining Path, which did a lot of very objectionable things. And there's questions about whether or not parts of the movement were actually infiltrated by intelligence services because they spent a lot of their time killing other parts of the left. But anyway, the point is that in response to this insurgency waged by, by revolutionaries, by Maoists, the, there was basically a fascist regime in Peru, um, and he, the the dictatorship, uh, just basically suspended civil liberties in Peru, and this was of course strongly supported by the U.S. And in fact, the in the most recent election, the the candidates in the election were basically a fascist and a leftist, Pedro Castillo. So this is why it was so important that Pedro Castillo won because it was a fervent. Uh, rejection of that legacy of the dictatorship led by this guy named Fujimori. And his daughter, Keiko Fujimori, was the candidate in the election. And Pedro Castillo, who is he? He is a teacher who led a teacher's strike, which is how he became a a well-known figure. And he was from a rural area. So he represents the ignored majority, the working class majority in working class, excuse me, in rural areas in Peru that have been totally isolated from the political system and ignored by the political system in Peru for decades. Whereas the other candidate, Keiko Fujimori, she represented a return to the fascist dictatorship that committed genocide against the left and peasants and indigenous peoples. That said, his victory was important, but Pedro Castillo has not really been able to govern And there's a variety of reasons for that. He very narrowly won the election by a fraction of 1%, which showed how divided the electorate was. And he came to power originally with a party that was called 
the Peru Libre Party, Free Peru, which actually was founded as a Marxist-Leninist party, but almost immediately, Pedro Castillo and his party started having major political disagreements. The, the Peruvian military has significant influence in Peruvian politics, and they basically did a soft coup against his foreign minister, who was a very good foreign minister named Hector Bejar, and had a history of being a guerrilla and a socialist and an anti-imperialist. He was basically forced out by the military, and then they, they brought in a, a much more center-left, kind of liberal foreign minister, and Pedro Castillo also started having political disagreements with his party, and basically his party had to split and turned against him, and he has basically become a lame duck president. So it's unfortunate to see. I mean, I support Pedro Castillo, and the progressive forces in Peru are trying to, you know, the, the grassroots movements are trying to mobilize behind him and trying to implement some of his projects, but he also doesn't have a majority in, in the parliament, in the Congress, which also makes it very difficult to get any of his plans pushed through. So Peru is an example of where just if you win state power in the presidency, it doesn't mean that you have state power completely. And if you don't have the legislative branch and if the military branch, the military and the state security apparatus is, is reactionary, it can be very difficult to govern. So I think what's happening in Peru is it's the beginning of a process. Mm -hmm. It's going to take many years for the left in Peru to be able to break through this rigid kind of right-wing regime that has dominated for decades. I think it's similar to Colombia. Colombia also has an election coming up in which the kind of center-left candidate, Gustavo Petro, he's he might actually win. And of course, if he wins, even though he's he has a lot of limitations and there's a lot of criticisms, it would be something very good for the people of Colombia because I don't think he's going to be able to do a 180 and have a revolution or anything, but he will be able to start to erode those extreme right-wing forces that Pedro Castillo has been faced up against. And it also shows the the degree to which the U.S. is backing just really straight-up fascist forces in the region. Because, I mean, Keiko Fujimori, who was Washington's candidate in the election, I mean, she really is a fascist. And in the case of Colombia, the Colombian government is very fascistic. I mean, every single year in Colombia, there are hundreds of human rights activists who were killed. Last year, there were over 90 massacres of human rights activists. So, in Peru and Colombia, the left, I mean, these people are on the front lines of what is in, in, in many ways a literal class war, a violent class war where human rights activists, peasants, union organizers are being murdered. And they're being murdered by paramilitary groups that have links to the state. So people like Pedro Castillo, even though they have not been able to govern very effectively, I think they're really they are on the front lines of a class struggle and we definitely should support them while understanding the the major obstacles they're up against. I totally agree. A lot of people may not understand the literal life and death uh, scenario playing out in, in these regions, Ben. And this is uh, the result of, you know, this decades long kind of Cold War mentality that was fed into by the West and also provided arms uh training to a lot of these death squads. I mean, this this mentality still carries over. I feel like for me in this country, it seems completely 
unbelievable that you can have these extreme pole shifts, you know, from from right wing to left wing in such a dramatic fashion across this entire region so frequently um, because we're just trapped in this two party dictatorship with very menial differences between these two parties. And there's just simply no room electorally to ever have power or advance power if you're actually on the left or if you're in a socialist party. So it's just it's just such a fascinating uh, like way that this all unfolds and the capacity for these movements in these countries to really take power. But as you mentioned, I mean, just simply taking power as the president, as we saw with, uh, you know, Hugo Chavez, like there's still so many problems if you still have a right wing that has a, a, a strong faction. Um, because they will just continue to work to undermine you in every which way. And then, of course, they just automatically have the backing of of the empire and its junior collaborators to completely destroy a- any attempt to nationalize you know, your resources or provide any sort of good life for your own people. I mean, I don't even think that we really need to mention Brazil because it's just so obvious. But this is another country where you had Lula replaced with a fascist and now you have, you know, unsurprisingly kind of brazil playing a role to ukrainize brazil as a really fascinating article on multipolarista lays out right now just this bizarre link between the two countries which is really fascinating brazil plays a very important role in this for two reasons brazil is the is the largest economy in latin america so i mean it's a massive country and also because lula da silva represents a faction of the old school left in Latin America. I mentioned this, the, the kind of two camps that have emerged, like the splits within the Latin American left. Part of that is generational. The anti-imperialist revolutionary left tend to be the older generation who look toward Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez and Che and Daniel Ortega, and they have this legacy of looking toward the Cuban and Nicaraguan revolutions, whereas the kind of newer generation is, is much more media savvy and social democratic and linked to NGOs and academia. And that, that would be like in, in Argentina and Chile. But Lula represents the old generation. And although he's not explicitly revolutionary in the way that, you know, uh, Fidel or Chavez or Ortega are, uh, Lula is absolutely one of the most important leaders in the Latin American left as a unifying figure who can bring, who can unite the revolutionaries with the more center-left forces. And that's, that's important. That's an important role to play. Uh, Lula, for instance, uh, at the peak of the Bolivarian Revolution, before all the coups and the blockade and all of that, he was a close ally of Venezuela, but also had good relations with the U.S. And Brazil is an important leader in the BRICS system, that is the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, that it was an attempt to create a new economic architecture to challenge the dictatorship of the US dollar and the IMF and the World Bank. So if Lula can come back, that is, if there is a free and fair election later this year in Brazil, polls show that he will win by double digits against the far-right fascistic president Jair Bolsonaro. That is going to be a massive shift for Latin America because it can also be a way not only to economically help further integrate the region with this huge economy in Brazil and help also to integrate the region with the Eurasian powers of China and Russia and Iran and and even India and South Africa through the BRICS, but also Lula could 
could play a role as a mediator trying to help unify the Latin American left, which, like I said, is, is unfortunately kind of divided at this moment. And we saw that when Lula was imprisoned after the U.S. Uh, back this soft coup in Brazil that removed the elected president Dilma Rousseff, the first ever uh, woman who was president of Brazil. In 2016, the, the U.S. backed this coup. And then in 2018, the U.S. Justice Department helped carry out another kind of soft coup that they, they imprisoned Lula, which is what handed the electoral victory to Bolsonaro. When, Bolsonaro, uh, when, when Lula was in prison, unjust, unjustifiably, illegally, we saw that Venezuela was helping to lead the campaign to free him. And Lula is still very close allies with Maduro and with Venezuela and is still friendly to Cuba and Nicaragua. So I really think that the most important election of this year is the election in Brazil. And we really, everyone needs to focus on what's coming up in Brazil because Brazil is not only a major regional power, it can be a major international power in the BRICS, and it could be a link for the Latin American left, and also it could be a link for Latin America with Eurasia, with, with the Asian powers, with Africa. I mean, Brazil is a massive country, and if Lula can come back, I think we there's definitely reason to be optimistic. Because it's, it's hard to really follow what's going on, especially with a lot of people who were even previously Lula supporters saying, oh, now he's you know, turning into a Biden during the campaign. He's now like aligning with all these centrists. And it's just like, I feel like even if that were true, just him being able to win back power would, would speak volumes. I mean, just the symbolic victory alone would just be absolutely historic. And I do have optimism that he would work to unite these regions. But I mean, he was a victim of this campaign. And I think that he understands his role pretty clearly. Yeah, and he he has allied with some centrists. I mean, that was one of the critiques of Ortega and the Sandinistas. But it is political triangulation, but it's toward a a political goal in the future. And you 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 form short term strategic alliances with these people, and then eventually you when you have power, you don't need them anymore. That's what the Sandinistas did, and that's exactly what Lula is doing. I mean, Lula ideologically believes deeply in the project of regional integration of Latin America. He is a socialist, and but he also is dealing with a massive country, Brazil, one of the world's largest countries, one of the world's largest economies, and a very reactionary political system. And he has to, he has to play the game, and he, he knows how to play it very well. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's what the left should do is build alliances in order to advance power. It's like siloing ourselves off and and not being able to understand coalition building, I think, is a big impediment here. Um, let's talk about sanctions really quickly before we get into China, because China plays a really important role in all this, as you've been mentioning. But we can't not talk about the sanctions on Russia and how it's actually impacting these countries, Ben. Juan Gonzalez, Biden's special assistant for Latin America and the U.S. National Security Council's senior director for the Western Hemisphere, admitted as such in an interview, as Multipolarista covered, that he basically said these sanctions on Russia are designed to impact Nicaragua, Cuba and Venezuela. So I guess it's it's a you know one two punch. They just keep punching down on these countries and it all can fit into the neat package of just being like, oh, no, we're just persecuting Russian oligarchs. Yeah, of course. Well, we should start by saying that 
the these sanctions on Russia are sanctions on the Russian people, not just sanctions. On, you know, the the narrative, as you alluded to, is that it's supposedly only impacting Russian oligarchs. No, I mean. First of all, the U.S. has openly said that it's trying to destroy the Russian economy. Last time I checked, uh, it's not just Russian oligarchs who use the Russian economy. It's everyone <laughs> in Russia and everyone who does trade with Russia. Furthermore, the U.S. and the EU have said clearly that they're waging a currency war and they want to devalue the ruble, the Russian currency. That means that anyone who uses the ruble, which is most Russians, is going to be impacted. They've been boasting that the U.S. government has been boasting that since the beginning of these sanctions, the ruble has fallen, uh, in terms of the price of the dollar, has fallen by 40%. Now, what that means is that the vast majority of people in Russia, working class and poor Russians who get paid in rubles, uh, that, that means that people who are retirees and receive Social Security in rubles, their payment, their payment has declined by 40%. Imagine if people in the United States, as you know, Mike mentioned, two-thirds of which are living paycheck to paycheck. Imagine if people in the United States got a 40% pay cut in two weeks. That's what these sanctions are doing to the people of Russia. These sanctions are devastating the Russian people, not the Russian elites. The Russian elites are going to be fine. They have their wealth in offshore in dollars or euros or whatever. So, I mean, we need to be clear about that. But then you also mentioned these revealing comments made by the top Latin American policy advisor for Biden, Juan Gonzalez. I, I call him the bad Juan Gonzalez, as opposed to the, <laughs> the, the good Juan Gonzalez of, of democracy now. So Juan Gonzalez, who comes from a, a very right-wing Colombian-American family, he made these comments, interestingly, only in Spanish to Voz de America, which is the Spanish language outlet of Voice of America, the US government-funded CIA-created propaganda outlet. He did not say that it's in English, and, and interestingly, they did not translate it into English. They only left it in Spanish because he was making these comments, obviously, to try to appeal to the right-wing people in Florida, who are a major you know, electoral base that the Democrats and Republicans always fight over. And he said openly that these sanctions are also targeted at Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. And it is true that Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba have important economic relations with Russia and also with China. And we know that fertilize, Russian fertilizer, Russian wheat, that these countries have important relations with Russia. And it shows that, like I was saying earlier, that what we're seeing is that these revolutionary movements in Latin America and the ALBA have been forming an alliance with the kind of Eurasian bloc, which you can say is kind of represented by the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which brings together China and Russia and Iran now. Iran just became a full permanent member. And the U.S. recognizes that basically these countries work together, so it's going to try to create divisions between them. We've also seen Jake Sullivan, who is the former Hillary Clinton advisor, who famously wrote in an email that was published by WikiLeaks, and Julian Assange is a political prisoner because of that, Jake Sullivan wrote in, in an email to Hillary Clinton in 2012, he said, quote, AQ is on our side in Syria. That is, quote, Al-Qaeda <laughs> is on our side in Syria. He is now the national security advisor for Joe Biden. And he's he fancies himself like a Kissingerian. He, he, he worships Kissinger and thinks that he can be like a new Kissinger, although he's not as smart as the horrible war Kissinger, hor horrible war criminal Kissinger. So, I mean, it's it's like... 
Kissinger is a smart war criminal. Jake Sullivan is a dumb <laughs> war criminal. So Jake Sullivan has been trying to do a reverse Kissingerian strategy now where, well, not even reverse, doing like this, he's trying to get China to ally with the US against Russia over Ukraine, which is insane because the US has spent the past several years accusing China of genocide, imposing sanctions on China, accusing it of every possible crime they can think of. And now they're trying to get China to join with the US and demonize Russia. Obviously it's not happening, but we see that the, the Biden administration, just as it, it reached out to Venezuela, I mean, they've been trying to take this, this policy of trying to divide Russia from its allies. And ironically, they've spent the past several years, not just them, but also Trump and Obama, the US has spent so many years unifying these countries with these policies. And you know, this is the, the perfect topic to end our discussion today on because it ties everything together. How the US new Cold War on China and Russia actually drove China and Russia together, even though China and, and the Soviet Union were actually enemies after the Sino-Soviet split. China actually allied with the US against the Soviet Union. But the US has pushed China and Russia together. It's also pushed Iran together with China and Russia with these sanctions and the constant economic warfare. And it's also pushed parts of Latin America into alliance with them as well. So we've seen that, that these, these constant US coup attempts and regime change operations, and then these sanctions, these brutal US sanctions, where now over one quarter of the global population lives in countries under sanctions. It has actually pushed countries together in an alliance against the US. And now we see with these sanctions on Russia, it's actually accelerating this process that you can call economic decoupling. And clearly, again, this isn't to endorse the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but clearly Vladimir Putin had made the decision. He said, look, I'm done trying to integrate with the West. I tried it. I mean, as you all did a great documentary about this at Empire Files, I mean, Putin came to power largely because of U.S. meddling. He was the right-hand man of Boris Yeltsin, who was this corrupt, alcoholic, incompetent. And the U.S. thought that, that you know, Putin would be a non-alcoholic version of Yeltsin, who would be, <laughs> who'd be more competent. And at first, he kind of was. But then he realized that, that Russia would never allowed to be on equal footing. It would never be accepted to be a part of the European Union and part of NATO. And he slowly has drifted toward the East. And this is, I think, the final moment where Putin said, look, we're done. We're done with the West. We don't care about the West anymore. And we're no longer afraid of their consequences. And yeah, they're going to impose sanctions on us, but we're not afraid. You know why? Because we're going to start doing trade with China. We're going to start li listing our our trade in the Chinese yuan. We're gonna start having our state-owned banks open bank accounts in the Chinese yuan, which is exactly what they're doing now. So this is actually accelerating a process of economic integration between China and Russia, which is also going to affect many other countries in the global South. An incredible realignment happening right now. It's pretty much a tectonic shift in geopolitics, Ben, and it really is completely to the fault of the U.S. and its imperialist warmongering foreign policy that has dominated the globe for so long and has forced countries to try to form their own alliances, essentially just to survive. Um, and, and of course, nothing 
excuses what Russia is doing. It's a little bit harder, I think, to actually figure out how did we play a role in this and what can we do to de-escalate the situation? And that's understanding the complexities and the context behind all of this. Um, I totally forgot to mention that Obrador actually tried to get Assange pardoned and offered asylum um, for Assange. So that's another reason that I really like Obrador. As far as the sanctions, this is something that is completely devastating to Russian people. This is what top economists are saying and actually boasting um, sadistically, saying that this is going to be the worst economic crisis since the 90s. You outlined the U.S. pillaging of the post-Soviet economy, the propping up of uh, U.S. puppet Yeltsin, um, the attempt to make Russia into essentially a neo-colony after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And this economic crisis that they saw after this period of time was absolutely catastrophic. Life expectancy plummeted. It was very hard to just live day to day. And top economists are saying, we're bringing them back to that period, Ben, and actually saying that that's an amazing thing. It is absolutely sick and barbaric. Um, it, and it's a, just a complete travesty that hundreds of millions of people are going to be punished for the criminal actions of a government um, that our government commits all the time, on a regular basis, the same exact actions. This is being displayed in so many sick ways, punishing uh, cultural aspects of Russian society. You know, this caricature of the evil Russian, I guess, never really left us, but it just it's just inane. It's inane, the bloodlust that Americans have, and just the punitive, like, measures that we're carrying out and just it's sick man i mean i really feel like i'm in a post 9-11 world but now it just makes no sense it just seems much more dialed in and uh it's just revenge revenge and bloodlust really defines american society i'm going off on a complete tangent but let's get back to china um china's well, one, one quick point yeah, really quickly abby please i mean it's incredible it, the, how much coverage the that, that ukraine has gotten and how almost no coverage we, we we see almost no coverage of yemen mm-hmm. yemen is not yemen is the worst humanitarian catastrophe on earth this march 26th is the seventh anniversary of the saudi bombing backed by the u.s and britain of the poorest country in west asia saudi arabia is one of the richest countries per capita on earth yemen is the poorest country in the region and according to the united nations as of late 2021, they published a report saying that by the end of last year, 377,000 Yemenis have died. That's almost 400,000 Yemenis. And by the way, the majority of them have been children. The majority of them. And almost no coverage. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia continues to, on a weekly basis, bomb civilian areas in Yemen with weapons provided by the United States, by Raytheon. A few weeks ago, Saudi Arabia bombed a prison that was holding a lot of immigrants and killed hundreds of people and wounded hundreds, and they used Raytheon bombs to do that. And it gets almost no coverage. And I'm glad, I mean, it is good to see people talking about Ukraine because this war, as I said, has gone on since 2014 that the US and NATO started. And it's good to see people calling for peace but we need to call for peace everywhere. And the people of Yemen deserve peace. The people of Syria, where the U.S. is still militarily occupying the oil and wheat rich regions of Syria, they deserve peace. The people of Iraq, who are also still militarily occupied by the U.S., after the Iraqi parliament voted unanimously to expel the U.S. military occupiers, they deserve peace. And then finally, 
Afghanistan. The <sighs> U.S. is still waging war in Afghanistan, but it's economic war. We, we, we were talking about sanctions. I mean, there's also just straight up piracy. The U.S. government has been stealing the wealth of many countries. They, they, they did this to Iran. They stole Iran's wealth. They stole Venezuela's gold, along with Britain. And they have now been stealing the Afghan Central Bank's reserves, which is going to potentially cause a famine in Afghanistan, which could kill more Afghans than died in the entire war in Afghanistan after 20 years of military occupation. And again, that gets almost no coverage in the mainstream corporate media. So, I mean, what the U.S. is doing around the world is just genocidal. And yes, we should oppose war everywhere, including the Russian invasion. But if we're serious about peace, we need to actually be consistent. And unfortunately, a lot of people only are concerned about war when it's Russia doing it. Yeah. And it really speaks to the manufactured outrage that is happening before us because I I don't blame people. I know that people are just reacting to the media outrage and this cultivation of you know, Russia phobia and war hysteria. But at a certain point, we really need to take a step back and ask ourselves, is our outrage consistent across the board? Do we have values that we can apply everywhere equally and take stock about what our government is doing as the global hegemon, as this genocidal power that is the world's largest terrorist organization? We're not in a neutral. I'm not sitting in fucking Costa Rica right now. Like I am in the glo- the heart of the global empire and I'm an American citizen. So, yeah, I mean, the fact that this country is just completely oblivious to the crimes it commits. I mean, a lot of people living here, and again, I blame the media, but at a certain point, we really have to instruct ourselves at this point because I, <laughs> it's devastating, Ben. And, um, you know, let's talk about China and the One Belt, One Road initiative because China has stepped in, as you mentioned, form, forged alliances with Russia. Also, Iran is being folded into the mix. You see the new director or I guess the the current director of ALBA, going to meet with Iran's new leader, Raisi. Talk about Iran's role in relationship with these countries and how the One Belt, One Road initiative is, you know, kind of bringing together these alliances in a way that can, like, have them have economic stability and what countries are being folded into this already. Well, there's over 100 countries who have signed on to China's Belt and Road Initiative. It's a massive global infrastructure project. And what's interesting is how it's evolved over time. So it was first declared in 2013 in Kazakhstan. And it was originally, it was going to be the One Belt, One Road Initiative. And it was the building a new Silk Road. The idea was to create a new Silk Road from east to west to bring back the Silk Road. But China as it began talking with more countries, especially in the global south, it realized that there is this really big appetite for infrastructure projects and for more favorable bilateral agreements because so many countries have a history of being trapped by the IMF, the U.S. Controlled International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank. And they take these loans, they say they want to build infrastructure, they take these loans, and then they're trapped in billions of dollars of debt. And then the U.S. government forces them to impose neoliberal structural adjustment programs, privatizing state-owned industries and state assets, cutting the social safety net, cutting healthcare and education, cutting the minimum wage. So China started coming around and saying that, look, we'll give you these loans for low interest, and basically there's no conditions. I mean, maybe the only condition is you have to recognize that Taiwan is part of China, but like there's no other conditions. It's not like the U.S., which has like eight million conditions on like this 
like cartoon piece of paper that like goes under the ground. Like, no, I mean, it's a, it, so China had saw this interest and it began expanding and it wasn't even necessarily the plan at first, but it, it just ended up becoming this new project and they renamed the One Belt, One Road. They renamed it the Belt and Road Initiative because it's no longer One Belt and One Road. It's actually all around the world. There's even parts of Europe that signed on. Although we'll see what happens now with the sanctions and all of that. There's an attempt by the U.S. to prevent countries from having really any significant economic ties to China. We saw this with the, the war on Huawei and China's 5G networks. So Latin America has become an important part of Belt and Road, along with Africa, other parts of Asia. And we see that recently, just in the past few months, Cuba and Nicaragua have joined the Belt and Road. Syria also just joined the Belt and Road. And China is pledging to build new infrastructure, including here in Nicaragua. They're going to build an interoceanic canal to challenge the monopoly of the U.S.-dominated Panama Canal, which is massively historic. This is extremely important because it can have a massive impact on global trade, especially for Latin America, but also for Asia. Because the Panama Canal is, I mean, there's so much trade that goes through, especially from Asia to the Americas. So this, this is actually going to be a, a very big shift for Latin America and for the world. And what I think people should think about, especially because I think, you know, a lot of people who listen to this probably are in the United States or maybe in Western Europe. We should start thinking more critically about the idea of why the U.S. and Europe have this transatlantic alliance, what that means, what the West is with a capital W. This is not a natural natural creation of geography. This is a political project that's rooted in colonialism and also white supremacy as a kind of ideology that is used to just, or as a, uh, yeah, an ideology that's used to justify colonialism. It was European colonialists who created the concept of whiteness to justify their colonial conquest, to steal the natural resources of the global south, to enslave people in the global south. They created the whole idea of whiteness. And the West is rooted in, in a lot of that colonial history. So wh- why, why does the U.S. and Europe, who are an, literally an ocean apart across on the other side of the planet, why are they so inextricably linked? Whereas, you know, why can't Europe have better economic relations and political relations with Russia and China? Like, why is that? They're, they're closer to Russia than they are. Germany is much closer to Russia than it is to the United States. But a lot of this is about the U.S. economy and the imperial order, the, the imperialist architecture that was created at the end of World War II through the Bretton Woods Conference, the creation of the IMF and the World Bank, which also made sure that the dollar would be the global reserve currency, Saudi Arabia being pressured by the U.S. to sell its oil in dollars. This entire apparatus that was created after the end of World War II was about the U.S. the U.S. empire and the U.S. economy subjugating other countries and keeping them subservient to the U.S. empire. And that transatlantic alliance is a key part of that. So I think that in Latin America, a lot of these movements are radically challenging that idea that all trade needs to go back to the imperial core, which is the U.S. and Europe, the transatlantic alliance, which is the center of the global economy. China has said, no, the center of the global economy should not be this transatlantic alliance. 
the center of the global economy should go back to being where the majority of the global population is, or at least a plurality, which is Eurasia, the Eurasian landmass, which also connects with Africa. So that's what the Belt and Road is also about. It's about moving the center of the global economy away from the transatlantic alliance, which, by the way, only represents 15% of the global population. The U.S. and Europe represent 15% of the global population. It's about moving the center of the global economy back to Eurasia, which includes China and India, the largest countries on Earth. Also Pakistan, also Korea, also Japan, also Africa, a massive continent with growing countries, including Ethiopia, including South Africa, and then also Latin America, and Brazil is part of this with the BRICS. So I think what we're also seeing is a radical reimagining of the global economy. And we need to stop thinking about the global economy resolving, revolving around the transatlantic powers and start thinking about the global economy revolving around the largest countries in the world, which are China and India and Brazil. And yes, the U.S. is always going to be a very large power as a very large country. But ideally, if the U.S. can stop being this imperial power that thinks that it should dominate the entire world and have complete hegemonic control, if the U.S. can actually have a government that is a, a government that cares for its people, eventually a socialist government that is rooted in the working class, then maybe the U.S. can one day, I mean, through a revolution, I think it's going to take, <laughs> can actually integrate itself into a global economy that is rooted in this idea instead of this economy that is, is all based on extraction, extracting the wealth from the global south and sending it to the imperial core in the transatlantic powers. We can hope, Ben. One can hope that that is the vision that we want. We can put forward the utopian vision of this country. It is very hard to grapple with uh, the concept of the United States acting any different than it does right now. And I think that as it loses its power, as its power wanes, we're going to see some very ugly and violent lashing out. You know, the shift in unipolarity is such a dramatic change in terms of the political realignment of the planet. And it, we're living in a really crazy time, man, especially with climate change on the horizon. I think speaking to this whole colonial nature of this relation of these relationships, rather, um, really says it all with Matt Gates, who recently said of Argentina joining the Belt Road Initiative that it was like a direct challenge to the Monroe Doctrine. Yeah. Like this is a, a hundreds year old colonial document that basically articulates exactly what U.S. politicians still declare that Latin America is the United States's front yard. If you're looking at Biden or if you look at Trump, it's our backyard. Like you say, pick your flavor of neocolonialism. I mean, I really think that this says it all, that these people running this country merely see Latin America as an extension of our country and for the global elites running the empire to control. I mean, it has its boot on the neck of hundreds of millions of people in this region, and it thinks it has the right to dictate these countries' futures. And it's an unbelievable kind of hubris and imperial arrogance that will be challenged, and it is being challenged right now. Speaking of multipolarity, let's close this out talking about your excellent new website project, Multipolarista. It's a bilingual news site. Incredible work, man. I don't know how the hell you do this. You are the most prolific writer I know. <laughs> you churn out several articles a day. <laughs> Anyone who follows your Twitter feed knows that you don't really need to follow 
anyone else other than Ben because Ben's got you covered. So talk about your new site and how people can find your work. Thank you, Abby. I mean, that means a lot. I, I love the Empire Files and all of your other projects, Media Roots Radio and everything. You all, you and, and Mike do such amazing work. So it means a lot to hear that from you all. I mean, so the idea behind the website is everything we've been talking about today. I really think that we're living through a historical watershed moment. You know, Lenin, Vladimir Lenin has this famous quote where he says, there are decades in which week, weeks happen and weeks in which decades happen. And that's exactly, I think, I mean, not exactly weeks, but we've been living through, in the past year or two or three, we've been living through, I think, a kind of watershed historical moment where after the overthrow of the socialist bloc and the declaration by George H.W. Bush, the CIA director turned president, that the, there was a new world order, which has nothing to do with, you know, lizard people and Illuminati or whatever. No, he meant U.S. unipolar hegemony dominating the planet. Ever since that moment, history was kind of at a standstill in many ways. And there were some, some moments that broke through that idea of the kind of neoliberal end of history, as Francis Fukuyama declared. One of those moments was the election of Hugo Chavez, the declaration of the Bolivarian Revolution. Hugo Chavez, in fact, back in 2008, started talking about the idea of pluripolarity or multipolarity. Venezuela talks a lot about multipolarity. And that was part of his vision. Chavez recognized that Latin America can also start doing relations, having relations with Iran and China and Russia. And in fact, it was the progressive governments of of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, of Rafa Correa in Ecuador, and Lula da Silva in Brazil. All of these countries started doing more and more trade with China and trying to build more relations with China. And I think that that has accelerated in the past few years. And now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it also, as bad as it is, I mean, I'm not saying that it's a good thing, it's absolutely not a good thing, but it does, objectively speaking, I think it represents a totally fund a fundamental shift in geopolitics. As I said, Russia has made it clear by invading Ukraine, it no longer even cares about trying to integrate with the West. It has clearly said that its future relies in integration with China and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which includes Iran. It also incredibly includes India and Pakistan, who are mortal enemies. So there's a lot of internal divisions and contradictions in all of this. But I really think that we're living through this historical moment and there's good things about multipolarity and bad things. The bad things are that it doesn't mean an end to imperialism. And, you know, I've had a discussion about this with Brian Becker, friend of the show, a brilliant activist, a brilliant analyst. And I was recently on his show, The Socialist Program, and we talked about the goods and the bads. And I agree with Brian that multipolarity is not the end goal. The end goal is socialism. But I, and I think many people have have come to this analysis that multipolarity can be a step towards socialism. There is this new group that's called the Inter International Manifesto Group that sometimes work with the Answer Coalition and Radhika Desai is one of their main thinkers and she's a brilliant, a brilliant economist and Marxist. And they have this manifesto talking about the idea of pluripolarity or multipolarity being a, a, a step towards socialism and how a multipolar world does create the possibility for socialists to, to survive, to, to have space to breathe. Whereas under U.S. unipolarity, we saw the U.S. just overthrowing any government that 
even if it was democratically elected, that tried to have socialism. Or back in the, the moment of bipolarity in the first Cold War, where the U.S. did the same thing. And, you know, in Chile, when the people of Chile voted for the socialist Salvador Allende, he was overthrown in a CIA coup in 1973. Or the destruction of Libya in 2011 by NATO, the most, power, uh, the most prosperous country in Africa. So anyway, the point is that there are downsides to multipolarity, as we see with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But there's also opportunities for these countries like we've been talking about today in Venezuela and Nicaragua and Cuba and Bolivia and Vietnam and the DPRK and Laos. There are people around the world in China trying to build socialism. And certainly I don't think Russia is a political model for us, but I think that Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua and Vietnam and China all offer us things to learn from. And we're part of a, a movement with, with the people in those countries to build socialism. And that's why I created Multipolarista, to, to understand that, that transition that we're living through and also to, to provide a left-wing perspective because there are bourgeois political scientists and geopolitical analysts who are trying to understand the new Eurasian Alliance and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in China and Russia. But I think we need to have a socialist analysis of that. So anyone who wants to get that perspective, you can go to multipolarista.com. And Abby and Mike, thank you. I mean, it was fun talking about these topics. I obviously am very passionate about them. And, and hopefully people listening, I mean, hopefully I can try to, you know, inspire some more interest in these topics because I think it's important as U.S. citizens, people from the Imperial Corps, it's important to understand the role that we have in challenging the empire in the belly of the beast and right now, we see this with Ukraine. It's made it clear that our goal, our responsibility needs to be to abolish NATO and to push for peace because the U.S. empire continues to show that even in this moment of multipolarity, it continues to cause wars and wage war around the world. Ben Norton, thank you for lending your encyclopedic knowledge to this interview explaining Everything. I mean, I just threw literally like 15 <laughs> countries at you and you're like, no problem, dude. Let me explain it to you. So I really appreciate your insight, Ben. You're incredible. Everyone go support Multipolarista. Go throw Ben some cash. It's a new startup and, you know, he needs all the support that he can get. Thank you so much for joining us on the Empire Files podcast, Ben. Thank you, Abby. And keep up the amazing work. Mm-hmm.